And as you're being seated, if you would take out your copies of God's Word with me and turn to Ruth chapter 3. Ruth chapter 3. At a turning point in this story of Ruth the Moabite. Ruth chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Listen carefully, because this is God's word for you. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative, with whose young women you were? See, he is widowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer Yet there is a Redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight, and in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, wait, my daughter. Until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's go to our God and ask his blessing as we examine this wonderful passage that's in front of us. Oh, Lord, we do ask for you to enlighten us. Give us the power to see this word that you have in front of us and help us to be transformed by it. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Has 
your life ever been in the hands of someone else? I don't just mean if you've gone through some sort of major surgery, although that is certainly placing your life in someone else's hands. But when you place your future in someone else's hands, when you're sitting across the desk from someone for a job that you really want, and you know it is up to that person on the other side of the desk whether or not you are accepted at this position. Or whether maybe you're on the other side of an admissions office waiting to see if your scores were high enough to be brought into the college course that you've applied for. Or maybe, like me, you were down on one knee at some point holding the most expensive piece of jewelry you've ever purchased and are asking one question, will you marry me? In those moments, your life is in someone else's hands. And it can be tempting as you are approaching those sections to try to figure out how best you can secure the position you want. Because you feel like this other person has the rest that you need, whether it's employment, marriage, or otherwise. And it can be tempting to try to take matters into your own hands. Perhaps even stop trusting and doing what the Lord has told you to do in those matters in order to get the thing that you're looking for. We've been looking for a new secretary recently and has had me uncover a lot of unfortunate things about resumes and finding out that a staggering number of people, thankfully none of our applicants, but a staggering number of people lie on their resumes in order to get the jobs that they're looking for. Seeking rest, but not doing so in the way that the Lord requires. And what we're going to see here is that the Lord is wonderful at finding rest for his people. Even under circumstances that are strange and plans that shouldn't have worked. As we look at these verses that are ahead of us, especially the first five verses, there is no way this plan should have worked. Here, Ruth is being told by her mother-in-law to surprise someone in the middle of the night with a marriage proposal. Trying to wait until a man has, half, has, has worked all day, has eaten and drunk, and is lying on a thing of grain. There's no artificial lighting, so all you're just going to be interacting with is shadows. And we'll see as this, as this passage unfolds, this shouldn't have worked. But it did, because the Lord is behind it. And even as we look at our own salvation and the work of, that the Lord has made of building his own kingdom, using people like us. It shouldn't work, but it does, because God is so good. So we're going to look at our two points today, as you can see them in your outline on the back of the bulletin. It says in point one, God guides even our strangest of plans. And then point number two is that God is the one who provides us ultimate rest. So let's look at this passage together. Here in this first five verses, as we see Naomi's questionable plan unfold. We begin here in verse one, where she says, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Here, Naomi is, as commentators point out, is fulfilling the hope that she had for chapter one. In chapter 1, in uh, verse 9, she tells Ruth and Orpah, who was with him at the time, verse 9 says, The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. 
And she was sending them away from her because she figures that's not something she is able to do at all. But note the character change. Now, after months of the Lord's providing for her here in chapter three, verse one, she feels like that she is now able to seek rest for her daughter, taking on a maternal role in finding this husband for her. Commentators also pointed out a shift in verse two in saying, is not Boaz our relative instead of my relative, and which would be actually accurate. She is now bringing Ruth into the family. Far from being empty as she has returned, here she is with Ruth. And she's telling her that he is going to be down winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. The way winnowing would work, you'd have a big pitchfork, you would stick your pitchfork into the grain, you'd throw it up into the air where there was a lot of evening breeze, preferably on a hilltop, and the breeze would blow away all the chaff that you can't use, the little husks that covered the grain, and the heavier grain would fall back down. It's a very efficient way of sifting through a lot of grain to prepare for harvest. They actually still do it that way in Israel. So he is going to go and be doing this, and she is telling her to wash and anoint herself, put on a cloak, go down to the threshing floor, and uncover his feet. Now, what is going on here? What is Naomi telling Ruth exactly to do? And we can see why this has not been a great plan, because it has been misinterpreted even today, as there are a number of commentators across the spectrum as to what it is that Naomi is telling Ruth to do. Is she telling Ruth to be provocative? Is she trying to tell Ruth to seduce Boaz, getting all dressed up and uncovering his feet? Some have said maybe feet can be translated euphemistically for something else. There's a lot of conversation as to where this means. And it's not exactly unfounded in the way that a lot of these words are translated to go and to lie and to uncover. A lot of these have sexual connotations in the rest of Scripture. But in not every case, I'm going to argue, as many commentators do, that this is not something that is untoward. This is something that is not sinful that she's telling Ruth to do. In changing out her garments, as uh, commentators noted, likely after Ruth's husband had died, she would have donned the garments of widowhood. Uh, There would have been a time of mourning during that period to be identified as this is a woman who is in mourning. And it's quite likely that Boaz is not going to approach someone who is still in this mourning process for the husband that she's just lost. So Naomi is telling Ruth, put off the garments of widowhood and put on, put on your best clothes as a signal to Boaz that the time of mourning has ended and that she is ready to reconsider marriage. And then as far as the uncovering of feet, uh, I think while some are trying to translate this in a different way, I, uh, looking at the language, I just don't see how people could be translated as anything other than feet. And that is indeed what we're doing. So the question is, why? Some have said, well, maybe this was, you know, the ancient ways of going down on one knee, but that's not the case. Women didn't propose to men. The best explanation that I found came from one commentator who said, It would be cold up there, and by uncovering his feet, it would wake him up without startling him. (laughs) That works for me. 
And that's what she's doing, is in the cold air up on the hilltop, wind is going to go by that would gently wake up Boaz without, you know, shaking him or something like that. Because the reason why he's sleeping with that grain is he's there to protect it. Is that if you were to come up and shake somebody at their shoulders to wake him up, there might be more than a marriage proposal coming your way. So we're having to be careful as we're approaching this. So that's what she's doing. But even still, in all of this, this plan is still odd. And that is a woman coming down to the threshing floor is something that prostitutes would do. She is from Moab, and Moab has an unfortunate history of this sort of thing. It is possible that Boaz can interpret this the wrong way, as indeed, apparently, centuries of scholarship has. Boaz also doesn't have the advantage of a well-lit study looking at this thing in text. He's being woken up in the middle of the night. But yet this plan goes forward, and it works. Let's see how. It's here in verse 6. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Just to make a note here, this is not saying that he has gotten drunk. This is just saying he he has enjoyed his dinner and his drink. He has had a good time of working and is now satisfied with his heap of grain that he is with. There's nothing that would suggest that he has been immoderate in his drinking. So she comes, uncovers his feet, and lies down, and apparently has to wait for a while. And at midnight, he turns to her and he says, Who are you? The expected question. And she says, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Now, there's a lot coming out here at this point. This is also not what Ruth, what Naomi told him to do. It said, wake him up and then wait and see what he says. But Ruth cuts right to the chase, doesn't beat around the bush, and gets immediately to, I am Ruth, you're a redeemer, you need to marry me. It's essentially what she's saying. This is unusual. You don't typically have women proposing to men. You don't have the younger proposing to the older. You don't have the servant proposing to the master. And you don't have a foreigner proposing to a native. All of these breakings of social convention are being done in this point. But Ruth's getting right to it. And then here is Boaz, 30 seconds ago, asleep. And comes out and says, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. Now, that is character. When I am awoken at the middle of the night, I do not possess a similar character. I don't bless the Lord when I see it's one in the morning. But hear what Boaz is doing. And this is something I didn't understand what he was saying until my study of this. He says, you have made this last kindness greater than the first. What's he talking about? Who is she being kind to? Is she being kind to him? Commentators actually have pointed out what he's referring to is this being being kind to Naomi. He sees what's happening. Ruth is proposing marriage because this is the way that both Ruth and Naomi can be taken care of. By binding these two in marriage, they will always be provided for. And he continues and points out that she could have had anybody else that she wanted to. She was a woman of character. She worked very hard. 
As other commentators pointed out, she was immensely strong to carry that much grain. And in, and in those days, having a wife that was strong to help you out with the harvest was, was a wonderful thing. And he says, you've not gone after poor or rich or young men, but you've gone to provide for Naomi. That's what he sees in this point. A wonderful strength of character. And then look as he continues. He says, I'll do all that you ask for, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. The word that he uses there for worthy is the same word that is translated virtuous in Proverbs 31. About the virtuous woman and is applying this same thing to her. I think that puts an extra tip in the scale that what she has done has not been sexually provocative. But the, I don't think he would ascribe to her a virtuous title there in the same of Proverbs 31. And he continues, there's a wrinkle in this plan. Naomi was apparently not aware of additional people that would be in line to redeem. He says, now it is true that I am a redeemer, verse 12. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. Scholars point out that the language here says, if he is not delighted to redeem you, then I will. This is something that Boaz is leaping at the chance to do. But this is a long-term sacrifice for Boaz. Yes, it's marriage. Yes, there's the opportunity for children and carrying on of your name, but this is taking on a lot of responsibility. As we'll see in the next chapter, others that would have had the chance to do this don't want to, because there is a sacrifice that's, in, that's involved. But Boaz is signing up not just to have someone glean in the field that he wasn't supposed to take advantage of anyway. He's now inviting to share in all of it that he has for this foreigner, for this Moabite, to take care of this widow. And here he is willing to redeem. Now we'll cover what all that means and how the kinsman redeemer um, concept works in the next chapter. Because we'll see more of the mechanics work of that. So we'll leave that issue from there until next week. But anyway, he tells her to lie down and wait until the morning. It would have been dangerous to travel at night. Uh, it was, again, you can't see very well. There's no street lights. There are animals. There are robbers. So it would, be easy. it would be safer for Ruth to remain there at his feet than to try to go back home. Even just something as a hole in the road could be very dangerous because you can't see it. So she lays here in verse 14, lays at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize one another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Now, who is Boaz talking to? We don't really know. It could be that there were other workers there at the threshing floor that helped him out with the, uh, with the grain the previous night. He's talking to them because he wants to protect Ruth's reputation. He sees Naomi's heart and that it was in a good place, but she put Ruth in a rather compromising situation to be there and that, to, to be there all night. He's trying to send her away to protect the, the reputation. Could be that he's talking to himself. We don't know. But he is at least giving this impression that he wants to protect Ruth's reputation and his own. And then in verse 15, he says, bring out your garment you're wearing and hold it out. So she held it out and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. 
Exactly how much grain, we don't know, has been put into her sack, because it doesn't say. It's just empty. It just says six and goes on from there. So there have been speculations as to what she's carrying. Some have said that she was carrying back as much as 60 to 80 pounds of grain, uh, depending on what thing we want to substitute in here. The scriptures don't say, but what is meant to be is that this is another generous gift that he's giving to Ruth. And we don't see why he's giving this to her yet until we get to the end of the passage and that he is saying, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Some have noticed that this empty-handed plays with what we saw in chapter 1, that when Ruth came back to Bethlehem, she said that I have come back empty. And here Boaz is filling grain and showing, no, you've actually come back full. The Lord has provided for you. Might also be something like a, a declaration of intent to the family here, that Boaz is in fact serious about being this kinsman redeemer for them, to marry them and to provide for them. So he gives her the six measures, whatever that is, of barley and put it on her and she went into the city. And then she came to her mother-in-law and her mother-in-law said, how did you fare, my daughter? Interestingly, as scholars point out, the language that's said there is actually, who are you, my daughter? Uh, There might be either because it's dark and she can't quite recognize her, or it's possible that she, this is a way of asking, has your name changed? Is there something different about you? How did, and so the translators correctly get, how did it go? How has this happened? And she goes and tells all that has happened and reveals that this is a gift uh, to her and her mother-in-law. And then her mother-in-law says, replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Now, what I was hoping in this chapter, because here at the beginning in chapter 3, verse 1, we talk about rest. And here in verse 18, there's a mention of rest. And I thought, ah, here's parallel to rest. It must be the same word. It's not the same word. It's sad. But what was actually happening here is that saying that he will not stop. He's not going to cease or rest until he settles this matter. And then we're left to wait as to what's going to happen. This would have been a very stressful day. The rest of us just get to move on to verse 1 and see that it's all going to turn out just fine. But she's got to wait. Remember, we're in the time of the judges. We don't know who this other redeemer is. Is he going to be kind like Boaz? Is he going to have the resources that Boaz has? Is he willing, even, to marry Ruth? Is he going to take care of Naomi? Or is he going to take Ruth and send Naomi packing? We don't know. We know what he should do is to care for all those people, but this is the time of the judges. No one cares what the Lord has told them to do. So this is a real moment as to whether or not there's going to be redemption. Because if there is, we might get redeemed by the wrong guy. And all that we have been looking forward to might come to nothing. Ever feel like that? You've built... This idea of what your life can and should be like. Work for a long time to make those things happen. Perhaps even try a desperate flail or two to try to make what you've constructed to happen. And then you're just waiting to see if it does. 
That's kind of where we are, even in our Christian life, as commentators have pointed out. We're in the waiting period. The Lord has come and he's died and he has forgiven us of our sins and has gone to heaven and has promised that we will be resurrected and that one day we will enjoy heaven for all of eternity with him. But for now, we're in between verses, chapters three and four. We wait and we're unsure. And we contend to look at our lives and see as the thing that we were hoping for doesn't happen. The job promotion doesn't come through. The application's denied. She says, um. And the road begins to turn away from what you had thought. Maybe it gets far worse than you thought. Maybe not only do you not get that job, but you get locked out of the industry. You're not able to, and all the plans that you had set up are all dashed. That's what I hope that we can take a look at in verse 2 or excuse me, in point two, was that God is the one who provides us ultimate rest. By looking forward to this rest that is guaranteed for us in the future, it helps us navigate this uncertain present. People talk about the fact that we don't know the future. Actually, we as Christians, we know what the future is. We know exactly what the future is. It ends in glory and victory. It ends with us in heaven. Worshiping at the feet of Jesus, our Savior, for all of eternity. That is as sure as the sun coming up this morning. We're the, it's the present that is not so sure. We don't understand how we're going to get to this point. We know we'll get there, but how do we get there? What's this going to provide? And it's by looking forward to that future is how we can say, well, I know where this story is ending. I know who I'm dealing with. And the person that we're dealing with is more faithful than Boaz. You can imagine that Ruth and Naomi would probably find some comfort in the fact that at least they will know their fate today. Boaz is going to handle it. If he said he's, he's, he's going to, he's going to. When he says, I'm going to provide you grain, he provides grain for the entire barley harvest. When you wake him up in the middle of the night, he has a blessing from, from, from the Lord for you. You know he's going to at least find out what's going on today. Our Redeemer is Jesus. We might not find out today when and how everything's all going to work out. But guys, we're going to find out. We're in good hands. We're in hands that have been pierced for us. Jesus loves us a lot. And anything that we're going through is something that he has designed. That is for our ultimate good. It's difficult to wait. I know. It's painful to wait. It's okay to pray that that pain goes away. You see that in a sermon I heard over the weekend about Paul praying that the thorn in his flesh would be removed. Yet the answer that he always got was that from, from God that his grace was sufficient for you. And it's sufficient for us as well. We've had our ultimate problem, which is our sin has been taken care of. Ruth is able to appeal to convention that she be married to Boaz. 
But there's no actual law that would force him to do that. Boaz could have said no. It's not required that he do it this way. She doesn't deserve, in other words, to be redeemed. And neither did we. We were sinners, foreigners, far away from God, as Ephesians says. Yet Christ has brought us near. Because he's lived the perfect life and died the death that we should have died, now we can be forgiven and be brought into heaven. He has redeemed us, paid the costs that was meant that we were supposed to pay, and has allowed us to be brought into heaven. He's revealed himself to us as being a gracious redeemer, more gracious even than Boaz. This has allowed uh, Corey Ten Boom, a famous missionary, to say, never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. We know who our God is, and we know that he provides for us. So what's our takeaway from all of this? Our takeaway from this is that no one upholds your life other than God, not even you. Here in this moment, it would seem that Ruth and Naomi's fate is up to Boaz and this other unnamed person who's never actually named here in chapter 4. Their life does not hang in their hands. Does not depend on how that particular elders meeting goes that day. Because the Lord has their life plotted out. He's got it secure. So this implies that we will never need to disobey God in providing for ourselves. That includes being anxious and worried about the outcome, because that's sin too. We'll never have to do that. Have to do that. Because we know that the Lord will provide. Now this doesn't mean that we don't provide for ourselves. Does it mean that we just sit in our chair and hope that food falls into our mouth? The Lord has provided us brains and bodies to be able to go and do the things that he's called us to do and be obedient to him, which involves working hard and providing for ourselves. But we never look to those things in and of themselves. We look to and trust in God for, our, for the results of whatever it is that we have because we serve a good and gracious God. One who does not forget even about widows and foreigners who from a legal standing and from, from anybody else's perspectives would have been no one and nothing. No legal standing, no real importance. But that's not how God thinks about people. That's not God, how God thinks about you. He provides for you. Will times be difficult? Yes, of course they will. Ruth and Naomi can tell you a thing or two about suffering and what their life was like. But what they can also tell you is that God provides for them and has used his providence even in their crazy plans that shouldn't have worked. That God uses even those to provide rest for his daughters. And ultimately, we're immensely grateful because as we'll find out in chapter 4, the fruit of this union will be King David, who will ultimately be Jesus Christ, the, be, be in that line, and has provided rest for us. So fear not. If he can use a half-baked idea on a marriage proposal 
to bring about the Savior of the world. That he can work through whatever disappointment you've had, whatever hardship you've faced, whatever person whose desk you're standing in front of that you think is holding their life in their hands, they're not. Your life is always with Christ. Your life is always being held in God's hand, and he will do what is right and good for you. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we do thank you for sending your Son so that we can see your grace and your willingness to provide, even from those of us who would be little ones and no ones. We are known by you. I pray that we would be comforted and that even some of the crazy things that we've done in our own lives that you will work through. (laughs) But help us to be obedient. Help us to see your hand working in our lives, in our joys, and in our disappointments. And may we trust you fully. I pray that if there's anyone here who has not come to Christ who has not trusted you for their soul, then I pray that they would today, that they would turn from their sins and trust in you, and that they would follow you all the days of your life. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.